Hello, this is Manny Ramos, your host of Rise Up, real issues and stories of every one of us podcasts. First, let me talk about who we are. I'm Manny Ramos, a board member of PNAA, a past president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Central Florida. I'm a professor of nursing at Valencia College in Orlando and an adjunct faculty at William Patterson University. With me today is my co-host, Mindy Ofiana. Mindy? Thank you, Manny. Welcome, everyone. As many have said, I'm Mindy Ofiana, Legislative Committee Chair for PNAA, Corresponding Secretary for PNAA Foundation, and past president for PNA Southern California, and currently an adjunct professor at Charles R. Drew University, Department of Medicine and Sciences. Manny? Thank you, Mindy. Our guest today is Dr. Darlene Acorda. She's a clinical specialist in the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Texas Children's Hospital and a pediatric nurse practitioner in the community. She's also an adjunct faculty in the undergraduate program, undergraduate program at the University of Texas Clark School of Nursing and currently serves as the chair of the Clinical Practice and Research Committee of the Society of Pediatric Nurses. Her research focuses on the experience of children with medical complexity and their caregivers, especially those who are tracheostomy and ventilator dependent. She has received funding support from the Society for Simulation in Healthcare to explore how family caregivers perceive the use of high fidelity simulation in learning tracheostomy emergency management. She also received funding from Sigma Theta Tau's Theta Pi chapter to examine the challenges of caring for a child with medical complexity during a global pandemic. Her other research interest is in minimizing pediatric health disparities, improving the rapid response of critically ill children, increasing cultural competence in care, and merging research and quality improvement methods to implement interventions with a positive, sustained impact on the care of hospitalized children. Dr. Darlene Acorda, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. Good to have you at Rise Up, Dr. Acorda. So how do you want us to call you, Dr. Acorda or Darlene? Dar Darlene is fine. <laughs> okay, so Darlene. Where did you grow up and how was your upbringing and was that a factor in where you have become right now? Sure. So um, I um, am a first generation immigrant. I, you know, I was not born in the United States. Um, I came here as a result of the, um, the nursing wave in the late 80s um, where Filipino nurses were being hired by hospitals mm -hmm. to help with the nursing shortage. And then also at that time, dealing with a different pandemic, which is the, mm -hmm. the AIDS pandemic. So my mom, she uh, first worked, she was hired in, uh, in a hospital in New York where I don't, I don't think that hospital is there anymore. It's Roosevelt Hospital, um, mm -hmm. middle of the island in between the boroughs. Um, and she came in the late 80s. And then um, a couple of years after that, in the early early 90s, was able to bring her family, um, uh, my dad, my brother, and myself. Um, and we, I grew up sort of all over the world, I guess. I, I grew up partially in Mindanao. I, my Davao uh -huh. is my home. Uh -huh. That's that's like oh, where wow. my family is from. And then I, you know, 
went and grew up a little bit in New York. And then all of a sudden in the late late 90s, my mom decided that she wanted to go and uh, migrate again to uh, the south. (laughs) My dad didn't like the snow. (laughs) He he missed the Philippine weather. And um, we came to visit uh, in Houston. And um, that was it. That was the, the... the place for them. So she became a nurse at MD Anderson and stayed there until her retirement. So she's a hematology oncology nurse, research nurse Mm -hmm. later on in her career. And I uh, grew up partially, um, I can call myself a Houstonian now. I've been here for more more than 20 years. Um, But um, I think my, my background has sort of, in a way, as crazy as it was growing partially in the Philippines, growing up in New York, growing up in Houston, I think has really contributed to um, who I am today as a nurse and also as a researcher. Uh, My mom has been the biggest influence. Um, She is always striving to get more educated and Uh doing different things. So she was the one who sort of, after my bachelor's said, "Mm, do you want to be a nurse practitioner? Well, maybe something to think about. And then after I became a nurse practitioner, (laughs) she said, I see a lot of PhD nurses in my work at MD Anderson. What do you think about that? (laughs) And so then um, she has been the propeller throughout the whole course of my career and probably my biggest supporter. So I have, you know, I have her to thank for all of that. I see. That is wonderful. Now it's good to learn that uh, you were you, you you were born in Mindanao mm-hmm. in Davao, right? Yes. And uh, how old were you uh, when you moved to the U.S.? I was eight yeah. when I moved I to the see. U.S. Yes, and so well, you do have some um, I, memories then, a little bit maybe. Oh, I I still speak uh, Bisaya. Wow. I speak. Tagalog and I, I can understand Ilongo because my mom's from uh, Iloilo. Wow. Um, so that never that never left me. My parents <laughs> were very clear that you you learn how to maintain your language mm-hmm. at home. So I see. Yeah. What's your fondest memory of the vow? <laughs> uh, climbing mango trees <laughs> as a child. <laughs> And just picking fruit, right, you know, uh, uh, right that, like nobody the cares. Yeah. Yes, the freedom, yeah. um, the freedom as a child yeah. in in Mindanao right. was probably my what I miss the most. Mm-hmm. I see. So, yeah. other than being a researcher, you're a first um, first degree immigrant, if it, as you have mentioned, climbing mangoes. What do you think? <laughs> Can you tell us something that's interesting about yourself that no one knows? <laughs> <laughs> so my my husband would probably be like this. <laughs> um, I I think um, so. I I'm also a potter. Oh, uh, wow. I do ceramics, and wow. um, I, I my initial degree when I went to college when I applied um, was actually I was a, I had intended to become an art historian. Oh. I was going to go back to New York and I was going to go work in a museum. Wow. <laughs> and um, I still loved science, and I, oh. I, but I was always in the back of my mind, but I thought, okay, I really like to do this. And so I pursued that and then, um, and then quickly realized that the science was too compelling. It was too compelling. It was drawing uh-huh. me too much. So I, I actually switched my degree and into nursing at wow. the University of Texas. Um, but yeah, so I, I think the one thing that uh, not, it's not a secret, but a lot of my friends, my close <laughs> friends, know is that um, 
I use art as a way to cope with all the stress uh-huh. of, mm-hmm. you know, nursing and medicine and what's happening with the world now. So I, I paint and I do ceramics and I try to uh-huh. stay creative uh-huh. um, because I find that that helps you in your research right. and, mm-hmm. and being an out-of-the-box thinker as a nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So yeah, that, those are sort of the things that I do on the side. Wow, first time to hear a guest who's a potter. Yeah, that's that, that's exciting. I that know. is exciting. Oh, I was late into later in my life that I, I the pandemic made me a potter. I would oh, say that's how I ended up. My husband bought me a pottery wheel, and yeah. and I I decided to try it, and I, I love it. Oh wow! So what have yeah. you produced so far? Oh, <laughs> little things. Is it mostly, glasses or or what are mostly, they? Mostly wine glasses for my friends. Oh, okay. wow. Something yeah. useful, you know, yeah. just a wine glass that you can use. Yeah. You know, the pandemic has been quite, yeah. quite stressful to a lot of my nurses or so my friends who are nurses. So I've, I've been making them something that they can use. <laughs> huh, Amazing. Interesting. So, um... So you started to talk a little bit about, you know, shifting your um, uh, career, your your education, going into the sciences. Um, but why nursing? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> so I was pre-med. I actually went into uh, my, my co- when I first went into college, my first year, I was pre-med and I was art history. And then I, my, my mom, again, who was, is very practical, um, said, well, you should, you know, just in case, you know, why not consider nursing and then maybe go back Mm -hmm. later on and pursue pre-med and that way you get more experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also did a lot of volunteer work at MD Anderson as a student in high school. So I was, I was always exposed to nursing. My mom is, um, when she was in the Philippines when I was growing up, she was um, she was uh, a, a more like an occupational nursing for, for mm-hmm. one of the bigger plantation, the banana plantations in Mindanao. Mm-hmm. So oh. she, I, I, there was I don't have a memory without being in a clinic or without, you know, knowing seeing patients in a oh. local mm-hmm. community hospital. Every, all of my childhood memories has some form of nursing somewhere in I there. See. I um, see. But I think that the reason why I became a nurse specifically mm-hmm. when I did, when, when, you know, during college was really because I, I really felt like that was the closest thing I could get to spending more time mm-hmm. with my patients. Um, okay. And then, you know, um, I went back actually after I graduated, I tried to do pre-med again to see if I still wanted to move forward with that path. Mm-hmm. And I took organic chemistry, finished all of that, and decided that that just was not, it was not the the path for me anymore. And I wanted to Uh take nursing and kind of see how far I could go with nursing instead. So, yeah. So that was the reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's nice. Nice path. Anyway, um, it was mentioned by Manny a while ago during your introduction that your research focused on the... uh, Ex, um, exper- experience of children with medical complexities. Mm-hmm. Who are the children with medical complexities? Uh, so they are a population of children that I don't think um, people quite know or understand completely. Um, in the 
uh, sort of the general pediatric population in the United States. You have children with special health care needs. So you have children who have uh, maybe diabetes or they have mm-hmm. long term mm-hmm. chronic asthma or they're, they maybe they have cancer or they have sort of these long illnesses. But there is a subset within this category of children with special health care needs called children with medical complexity. And they're really defined by four very distinct things now. Um, Before 2010, Mm -hmm. we didn't really quite understand how to define these kids. But um, but since then, there has been a movement in uh, in pediatrics to really be clear of who these kids are. And they are, to put it simply, the sickest of the sick of your children with special health care needs in your general population of kids. Uh, so mm-hmm. typically, they are children who have life-threatening or life-limiting or severe illness. They have another one is a part of their definition is that they have to have a, uh, a very severe um, limited functioning. So oftentimes, these children really cannot be um, carers for themselves. They really are dependent on others, mm-hmm. uh, specifically their families, to take care of them. Um, they are also... Um, they are very high users of healthcare services. So these children, mm-hmm. um, even though in the overall population of pediatrics, all children in the United States, th- this population only makes up about 1% of that total population, mm-hmm. but they, they make up a third of healthcare spending in pediatrics in the United States. So they are high, high consumers consumers of healthcare services. Um, And then the fourth is that they are dependent on some kind of technology, whether that be tracheostomy, um, maybe a combination of tracheostomy and a ventilator. And so these kids over the past 10 years have even become more, uh, I consider them chronically critically ill because they are going Mm -hmm. home Mm -hmm. with with conditions that we had never even thought was possible to send kids home. Um, and then they are being managed in the home, not by medical providers like ourselves in the hospital, but their families. And so the mm-hmm. the, the gravity and the, the intensity of care that they receive from their families, not from healthcare providers, is very very stressful, very, very extensive. Um, so that's sort of a growing population of kids. As, as we've gotten better mm-hmm. with keeping kids alive after they've been born and have increased the survivability mm-hmm. of NICU babies, well, they have to go somewhere. They can't stay in the hospital forever. So that population has really mm-hmm. become, has kind of boomed over the past couple of years. And I, I can foresee that it's going to increase even more over the next decade or so. Mm-hmm. So, um, Darlene, now, can you tell us uh, what are the biggest opportunities or unique challenges faced by the children with medical com- uh, complexity or CMC and their caregivers pre-pandemic? So I, I think that's a good question because um you know, this is normal without any stressors that a global pandemic brings. Mm-hmm. This this population of kids, especially their caregivers, so their parents, um, mm-hmm. and 
family members are compared to other families of children with special health care needs and certainly compared to families of healthy children have much higher rates uh-huh. of depression, much higher rates of stress and anxiety. Um, they have been mm-hmm. found to have PTSD from very traumatic um, events that have happened to their children. Mm-hmm. And they also have much right. poorer quality of life compared to uh, parents of other types of kids who are not this complex. So before the pandemic, this population is already at high risk for generally just lower, you know, mental health status and poorer well-being. Um, and so then you add this layer of um, a global pandemic, you can only imagine how much more of a stress that is. Um, to put into kind of perspective, these families um, tend to be single income household because one fa- one member mm-hmm. has to stay at home to take care of a tracheostomy ventilator right. dependent child 24 seven. Um, they don't receive the type right. of nursing support that you would think they should receive, um, mainly mm-hmm. because Medicaid and the type of support that we allocate to these families are not the best. Um, and then typically mm-hmm. they are at a lower income level because of the choice to have only one parent work. Um, so then, you know, that's just one child, but if they had other children, there's also the stress of having to manage a whole family with a medically complex child. Um, they have up to, I think the, there was a case that I saw where a, a child had about 58 different subspecialties and therapies oh, that wow. they would have to see in a span of mm-hmm. like six months. So these children are just right. very, um, they have high rates of, um, uh, morbidity, so they die um, quite often, not quite often, but um, but they have higher risk for dying at home. Um, mm-hmm. And then when they do have yeah. an event that happens at home, their risk for morbidity, go, uh, mortality and morbidity goes up even worse. So that's sort of the, the status as of pre-pandemic. And so when the pandemic came, mm-hmm. I was really concerned right. for this population because during the lockdown, during all of these things that were, you know, sort of implemented as, as good public health measures, um, they had no access to healthcare services that they needed to get to. Um, they didn't receive the same therapies mm-hmm. that normally they should have been receiving at home. All of that sort of stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the surgeries that we right. would schedule for these kids to kind of help them. So some, a lot of those surgeries in the pediatric uh, hospitals across the country had to stop. So a lot of these, you know, procedures and tests that we needed to run to kind of make sure that they were in a good trajectory, kind of basically paused for a good, you know, year into the mm-hmm. pandemic. And so then on top of that, the loss of jobs. Um, I had a mother who I interviewed and she told me that she would rather not pay her mortgage uh, instead of not paying her insurance mm-hmm. because she was mm-hmm. worried that she could yeah. not get coverage for her medically complex child. And so she and her husband had lost um, his job at that time. So there was a lot of you know job mm-hmm. loss and unemployment as well. So all of that, you know, and then the fear that kind of was circulating that's another you know another side there but um, mm-hmm. um so a lot of the families really and continue to struggle to this day um just from you know the impact of you know having to experience this huge public health crisis so how has covid posed different challenges for this population uh, versus the healthy children 
So I think that the, um, so for me, when we, when COVID was starting, I work in the pediatric ICU, I'm a clinical specialist. So we were so busy trying to figure out how, how bad is this going to be in kids in general. So we were prepping, you know, sort of preparing, um, anticipating that this was going to be as bad as what we were seeing in the adult population. And thankfully, that wasn't the case in the pediatric world. Um, most of the children that got COVID, um, they, you know, generally were doing fine. Um, there is a subset of children that were hospitalized and that those were typically the teenagers who were uh, either obese or had diabetes or had other comorbidities. But the population that we did see in the hospitals, um, at least at our institution, were those kids that already had um, comorbid conditions, congenital heart disease, so those kids who are medically complex already. So that when they did get COVID, they're already immunosuppressed, they don't have as much reserve, and they were already at risk for you know anything to really send them to the hospital. And so those were the kids that we started to see more rather than just healthy children. And mm -hmm. I think I don't think that there was, unfortunately, there wasn't as much focus on that, I think, in the media, you mm -hmm. know, so most most of the media kind of focus on healthy children. Well, you know, COVID wasn't right. hitting healthy children as much. So you, this is good and this is that. But um, I, I do wish that they should have focused more on the kids that were getting affected that we were still seeing, even though they were smaller in numbers, that when they did get affected, they had some pretty severe um, uh, outcomes from that, um, because I think that was part of the frustration from the families is mm -hmm. that people weren't being careful and that they chose a lot of the families I spoke to for my research really chose to self-isolate because right. of the the risk was just too high for them. And they felt very frustrated that people weren't taking mm -hmm. this pandemic seriously in the beginning. Um, so I think that's that's really the impact is that, you know, unlike normal children, these are the kids that you should be very, very focused on in a pandemic. And even though it was good that normal children were not getting affected, um, that there is this subset that when they do, it is quite uh, severe in that population. And so if you can imagine if they're already high users of emergency, uh, of um, um, healthcare services and high cost, having a hospitalization of a child with medical complexity during a pandemic increases that cost even more. So um, I hmm. think that's where that, that wasn't as discussed as much in the media during the pandemic and still isn't. I don't, I don't think I've seen that since yeah. then either. So um, Darlene, what are the needs of CMC and their caregivers that are still left unaddressed two years since the start of this pandemic? Yes, a lot. <laughs> I think um, uh, in 2018, um, Congress um, had passed an act called the RAISE Act, which really focused on caregivers uh, in general and um, really trying to recognize that more research needs to be done in caregivers and, and kind of acknowledging that caregiving work is different from being a parent, that those things should be recognized separately. And, you know, caregiving work for someone who have an elderly parent is different from being their child. Um, but I think the pandemic sort of made it um, kind of amplified the gaps, the big, big gaps in, in, in the US on how to best support these families. And one of the biggest things that has been sort of circulating around is that we should consider caregivers of children with medical complexity to be like frontline workers. 
because they are essentially mm-hmm. us in the home setting. And so when we roll out these initiatives like the vaccines, um, the vaccines was available first and foremost for healthcare providers. And it took some time for the general public to be able to even access those vaccines. There is a move now to really change that and to include those who are caregivers of immunocompromised individuals, as well as those caring for children with medical complexity in that first line approach so that they be included along with healthcare providers in order to receive these vaccines first. Um, So there's Mm -hmm. that focus. And then the other, I think the other thing that we haven't really even quite begun to address is how do we start to um, support them better in the home? Um, Meaning how do we provide them respite so that they get a little bit of time for themselves and that we can provide them nursing support. Um, that's, I think that's gonna be a long game. Um, that would take changing our entire uh, perspective on how we allocate care in the home environment. Um, so lots and lots of things I still have done, haven't really quite gotten addressed. Um, some of the things that parents have spoken to me about is that at the beginning, there was really no source of truth when it came to what was happening with the pandemic. And so they were getting mixed messages. Um, and I think that was just sort of mm-hmm. part of that you can't help. You're sort of in the middle of a pandemic. You don't know, you know, your research is coming out so fast that you're trying to catch up. But um, just simple things like, you know, is there a place for families to really go to so that it addresses their main concerns, whether that be from larger organizations like CDC that's really related to the condition of their children or their Mm -hmm. their situation. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot of questions from families about the vaccine, for example. So um, one of the most frequent frequent ones that I received from uh, families at the beginning of when we started vaccinating children was that, well, well, they're in a million medications. They're on this medication, that medication, this medication. Mm-hmm. How is this going to interact your, with the vaccine? And, and is the vaccine going to make their condition worse if they already have a neurological condition? Um, some of the you know side effects of vaccine in general is you can have something like Guillain-Barre, which is that you know sort of temporary paralysis. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. so a lot mm-hmm. of our families were like, "Well, he already has part of that. So how how do we know it's safe for my child who can qualify for mm-hmm. vaccine?" So there's a, there's a lot of questions that um, were never and have not been addressed um, for this population, um, mm-hmm. and so. I think the assumption is that, oh, you have a child with medical complexity, of course you're gonna to want to vaccinate, but that's not always the case. Families have a lot of questions mm-hmm. and, um, and a lot of those questions mm-hmm. are left unanswered. You know, I, I, I don't know if there's a different program. I have another question, but I just wanna share a comment because respite nursing on Medicaid here in California <laughs> is approved. So I, I don't know why in Texas it isn't. So that's my opinion only, but I have a different yeah, question. That's, that's correct. How, how can healthcare providers, just a comment, how can healthcare, well, how can healthcare <laughs> providers such as nursing can support CMC and their caregivers during a global health crisis? I, I think the, um, the first thing is to recognize that caregiving is work. Um, I think that a lot of people assume that because it's their child, that they that it's mm-hmm. it's like you're you know you as a parent of course you would you know give everything, and so a lot of families feel that that's sort of uh, it's a crippling expectation that they are not allowed respite 
because that's my child. And the assumption is, of course, you would mm-hmm. you would do everything mm-hmm. for your child 24-7, seven days a week. <laughs> but um, I think to for healthcare providers, when, when you do have a, a patient who is a medically complex child and they have families around, something's as simple as just turning the focus on the caregiver and just asking, how are you doing? You know, and not not mm-hmm. caring so much about, you know, are you do are you doing do you have the resources that you need to to have the medications that you have at home and do you have questions about how mm-hmm. to take care of this condition or do you have questions about how I can teach you about your child? But really just sort of just just focusing on them and asking, How are you? Every is everything okay? How are you coping? Do you have sources mm-hmm. of support outside of the medical world that you can turn to when things get really rough. Um, every time I ask families that question, it's like I can see this just wave of relief of just n- being recognized. Um, and I think that is the biggest thing that any nurse can can do for uh, a parent of a child with medical complexity mm-hmm. is recognizing that they are not just mom or dad, but there is also this other role that is very unique and very demanding. And and just being able to, even for that moment during that shift or that day, to let them just let you know how they are and asking them about their own mental health and their own mental well-being and seeing what they need for support. Um, I think that's where it starts because then once we start to recognize that these two things are separate and they're very stressful, um, then I think it changes mm-hmm. how we approach things um, when we're educating families nice. and when we're, um, you know, sort of scheduling tests and, and doing all of these procedures that always being in mindful about the fact that there is a parent there, yes, but there is also a caregiver there. So Darlene, as we end our conversation, um, please share to our viewers and listeners your last thoughts about the children with medical complexities and their caregivers, uh, anything that we haven't discussed or asked you. Lots. I could go on for like hours, <laughs> but but I think um, <laughs> I think in light of all the things that are are going on right now in the world, um, I think that um, the at least the most current and pressing things that we are looking at in healthcare certainly applies to the population of children with medical complexity and their caregivers. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk a lot about in this podcast about just what's it been like during the pandemic, but I, I want to kind of impress that this is in addition to what has already been happening. This- this is not mm-hmm. this. All of this is not. It began. It began with the pandemic. No, these are these are gaps in our system that have not been addressed, and also that even though I'm talking at a higher level of general caregivers, that there are experiences here that are unique to uh, caregivers of children who of minority background of those who are disadvantaged. Uh, There is a lot of disparities within this population as well. Mm -hmm. And then also the experience of those families who don't speak English to have to navigate this Mm -hmm. world of uh, healthcare with a child that's very medically complex. We are just starting the beginning of that work and that is still left unanswered what that's like for a family who maybe speaks Spanish or who may who may speak Arabic or Vietnamese and having to figure out now how to learn all this care, manage and navigate a healthcare system as complex as ours and not speaking 
accomplish. So I think that mm -hmm. in this, even in this population, um, those disparities are very real. Um, and I just want you know, sort of people who have who take care of these kids or are around these types of families to be very cognizant of that um, and really be empathetic to what they're going through. Because I, I say it every single day. I would not even imagine me and I have a lot of, I'm a pediatric mm -hmm. ICU nurse. I know how to manage these strikes and vents. I could not even imagine having one like that at home with me. So just kind of always keeping that in mind. Right. The care of children with medical complexities. That is all that we have for this episode. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Darlene Accorda, and my co-host, Mindy Ofiana, our director and producer, Rodney Cahudo, Carol Robles, PNAA Chair for Communications and Marketing, our advisor, PNAA Foundation President, Nancy Hoff, and our executive producers, PNAA President, Dr. Marie Joy Garcia Dia, and PNAA Executive Director, Carmina Bautista. Join us here next week. Until then, keep on rising. See you then. This publication was made possible by Cooperative Agreement, CDC, RFA, IP21, 2106 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDC HHS. <laughs>